So hello, everybody. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and welcome to a special installment of the Dinner Party Download, yes. Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. It's great to have you. Indeed. And usually we present you with a smorgasbord of info to help you excel at parties this week, from history trivia to cocktail recipes to etiquette tips from famous folks. Today, though, we have but a single hearty course on the menu. <laughs> That's right. Later in the week, we'll have a full buffet. But today, yep. it's the first of what will be a series of podcast-only extended cuts of our Guest of Honor interviews. Mm. And we could think of no better way to kick it off than by giving you this half-hour conversation with Mr. Steve Martin. He'll be performing a series of bluegrass music shows at the Hollywood Bowl to celebrate the 4th of July. Go there if you can. And when Rico spoke to him back in April, it just so happens he talked a lot about bluegrass. A lot. You'll hear that. Plus, conversation about Steve's early days as a comedy performer and lots more. Hope you enjoy it. And now, take it away, me. We are here with Steve Martin. Maker. We are? Oh, great. Yes. Fantastic. Let me tell you about him. He is a maker of laughs. He is a writer of novels, plays, and films. He is an actor of stage and screen. But most remain to our conversation today. He is a Grammy-winning banjo player and bluegrass musician. His new live CD and DVD with the band The Steep Canyon Rangers, which also features singer Edie Brickell, is weirdly called Steve Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers featuring Edie Brickell live. Where did you come up with that? I don't know. I think it was just... a. a it was an emotional, poetic title yeah. that I came up with one night. It's just the artistic yeah. temperament. After a few drinks. He launches a tour with Edie and the band in a few weeks, and Steve, it is an honor. Thank you very much. Very proud to be here. And you forgot uh, in my introduction, uh, under acting, maker of faces. Oh, yeah, yeah. You do that on occasion. Yeah. What's the best? Which face won you your recent uh, Lifetime Achievement Oscar, do you think? Uh, it would probably have to be the uh, face I made in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels <laughs> as Ruprecht. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That is the Oscar-winning yeah. face. Yes. For those who haven't seen it, uh, you're... What do you mean for those who haven't seen it? Who well, hasn't seen that? the people who are like 10. I they were not alive. <laughs> yeah. What do they? How do we describe Ruprecht? Uh, you'll describe it with this voice. <laughs> I don't know. Let's talk about your start on the banjo. In your book, you write that the inspiration for you was hearing Earl Scruggs's Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Correct? Yes. I, actually, uh, in an autobiography, there are many moments that actually get gets one going. I started, I think, really with the Kingston Trio and folk music and hearing the banjo in the background just being sort of strummed mm. and Pete Seeger. And then when I heard Earl Scruggs, that's what really sent it over the top for me. We have a clip of this. You want to listen to it for a second? Absolutely. Earl Scruggs was such a genius. I mean, he transformed the banjo. It, there's a controversy whether he invented three-finger style playing, but he definitely invented Scruggs style, which is that style you just heard. I would hope so, since his name is attached yes. to it. <laughs> yes, it wasn't a coincidence. And... This all came together when Bill Monroe put together the Bluegrass Boys on stage at the Ryman Auditorium. They actually have the date. Uh, that the style was invented, uh, Well, blue, uh, Bill Monroe invented Bluegrass, which was this sound as, where the, the singers you know, singing falsetto and the, the instrumentation of the five-string banjo and the mandolin and the guitar and bass and fiddle. When Earl Scruggs came into the Bluegrass Boys, that's really when the sound was founded. And and when Earl Scruggs got on, on the stage, I don't have the exact date, but it was in the fall of 1945, mm. the place went crazy. It was like, uh, you know, 
rock music. Well, this is uh, that actually reminds me. At the time you heard that song, you were also into rock and roll, but you didn't, for instance, start playing electric guitar. What about right. Foggy Mountain Breakdown made you want to pick up the banjo? Well, you know, I, I, I don't really know why. There was something about the banjo that connected me back to something in America. I, I found it actually quite emotional and melancholy, actually. And the, the audience listening might not find what they just heard melancholy. Um, I did. You heard, you thought that song specifically? Well, you know, there. I don't know if I found that song melancholy. I found it thrilling. But also uh, there's the modal mountain sound of the banjo that comes from Appalachia. And the songs had roots in Ireland and Scotland. And I have Irish and Scottish and English roots, and mm. I was born in Texas. Now, I don't know where that came from. I don't know if I believe yeah. in bloodline. I was going to say. <laughs> I don't your know. blood was singing to you, Steve. Um, but I just loved folk music and the modal sounds of the chord changes and the message of uh, these you know, obscure songs, murder ballads, and mm. darkness of these tunes. So it's interesting that you go straight to darkness, though, because actually early, even in your comedy career, there's actually a gag that you had that was about how it's impossible to play a sad song on the banjo. Was that purely for comic effect? It was really for comic, because I always believed there, you know, I, I, I hadn't really learned how to play in that style. I, the uh, the there, sort of melancholy, well, more melancholy I, style. I did a bit. There was, I had... I can't say I mastered. I, I learned how to play three-finger style, the Scruggs style. And then the more I listened to the music that I could acquire in Orange County, California <laughs> in the 60s, I realized there was this other style of playing called frailing. It's now called claw hammer because uh, I guess it just sounds better. Yeah, frailing <laughs> does sound melancholy yeah. in and, a wonderful way, uh, It's played in a completely different way. It's not played three-finger style. It's played with picks and frailing. Claw hammer is played without picks, and it's actually played with the back of the fingernails. So it's almost brushed. Kind it's of. it's brushed, but it it's quite specific. It's not stru- it's not strumming the banjo. It's picked individual notes as clearly as three finger style is. But it's it's like the difference between tap and ballet. And I thought, oh no, I love it so much. I have to learn this whole other way to play. And you have I'm to so, relearn the banjo. Basically. Right, I had to relearn it. And I'm so glad I did, because later in life when I really started playing, let's put it this way, I always played seriously, but I started making music seriously in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, it really opened a whole world for me, pardon the cliche. <laughs> we will, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. I want to stay on your getting to that point mm-hmm. for a second longer. You had banjo in your act from a very young age, like from, almost from the very beginning. I did, always. But mm-hmm. there's a quote here. From your book where you had this big revelation in college about being original and here's the quote i would have to write everything in the act myself any line or idea with even a vague feeling of familiarity or provenance had to be expunged there could be nothing that made the audience feel they weren't seeing something utterly new so how does that urge for newness and modernity jibe with bluegrass banjo which is maybe the most familiar oldest kind of american well in my comedy show I really first started using it because I needed time. I needed at least 15 minutes on stage. To fill an act. Fill an act up. And I, at that time, I could do magic tricks. I had a few jokes, juggling, and banjo. But I also used it as my act grew 
and became more, let's call it, surreal, yes. I liked the fact that I had something that looked hard <laughs> because uh, <laughs> I was worried that the audience might think, oh, he's just goofing around yeah. up there. And I wanted them to have something to land on that said, well, that looks hard. Maybe this other thing is not as uh, just casual as it might look. So they kind of felt like they got their money's worth in a weird way? Well, in a weird way. But, you know, sometimes I I remember seeing um, when I was early 20s, seeing paintings by de Kooning that were very abstract. Mm. You know, when you when you initially see an abstract painting, you, yeah. think, you know, think, well, that's easy. And then you see early drawings by de Kooning that are extremely uh, detailed. They look like Holbein drawings. They're fantastically mm-hmm. detailed. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, this guy can actually draw. Sure. And uh, when you're young like that, it helps support the belief in an abstract painting. If he can do this, then the comedy must have also been Been thoughtful. crafted a little bit more. I mean, that was what I was thinking. I, I don't think it actually worked that way, but that's what I was thinking. You know, remember I was well, 20. There, I mean, it's interesting because there is a kind of the precision of banjo picking. It's not a coincidence that that goes hand in hand with comedy in a way. The timing even of your most surreal stuff is extremely crafted. Well, a lot of uh, comedians are mu- musicians. Um, is that right? No. Well, actually, Woody <laughs> Allen, I was thinking of Woody oh, Allen, of course, uh, yeah. plays clarinet. Kevin Nealon plays five-string banjo and guitar. Really? Yeah. Do you jam? Uh, yes, we do sometimes. Uh, will we get an album? I don't think so. Come on. The comedians of, of <laughs> I Who would want to buy that? I would, me. <laughs> anyway. Um, in the 80s, you put out an album called Steve Martin Brothers that's one side comedy, one side entirely bluegrass. Right. And well, I, just... I, wouldn't say, I wouldn't say bluegrass. It was all songs I wrote. Okay. And some of it might qualify as bluegrass, and some of it maybe doesn't. But uh, there were some definite bluegrass cuts on there. One song made it onto my first CD called Pitkin County Turnaround. That actually is a bluegrass song. I just remember getting that record when I was younger and just being totally perplexed by that. I had no idea how I was supposed to receive it. Well, you're right. (laughs) Because I was just out of comedy material. That's it? Yeah, I was out of comedy material. I, I, I didn't want to write in the comedy material in the same vein as so you just slapped my some act music was going and, and I had recorded these songs. I was actually quite proud of the music. Yeah. And we sort of had a premise with one side I looked like a hippie banjo musician and, and the side other side cover, I looked yeah. like a comedian and we were just really fulfilling a contract. So you don't put out another album between then and 2009. It's like 28 years later. I'd have to do the math myself to, to uh, I'm telling fact you. check you. But uh, just I trust me, I'm, I'm the host. Yeah. And what, I mean, what happens in those intervening years? What happened that made you kind of want to put it more front and center? You don't. Oh, 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 what happened that the banjo came back? Yeah. Well, I don't know if this is interesting or not, but I'll, uh, I'll tell you and then you can edit it out if <laughs> but, it's not interesting. Perfect. If at this point you hear just a sudden upcut, it's yeah, because I, everything yeah. is boring for the next uh, You'll hear minutes. this. And then I, oh, and oh, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, um, I had kept playing the banjo a bit. And when I would do a movie, I would take it back in the trailer because I have a lot of time. And I'd, you know, write a few tunes every once in a while or, or learn a very complicated song, uh, which I would then forget as soon as I, yeah. you know, the movie stopped. But, and then about 2001, uh, Earl Scruggs called and said, would you like to play on a CD we're doing, a 75th anniversary of Earl Scruggs? Right. And I said, 
sure. Uh, you know, that'd be fun. We're going to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown. I said, okay. With a bunch of other musicians. Was, so, it really, was that what you said? Okay, like this is the song that basically launches you down a certain musical path. Was it? Um, was that moment? Yeah, I, I thought, okay, that'll that'll be fun. That's and I had met Earl Scruggs several times, so I felt okay. like I kind of knew him a bit. Right. It wasn't. You weren't starstruck, I guess, at this point. I'm always starstruck in front of Earl Scruggs. That never went away. But but he's a sweet was a sweetheart of a guy. Oh, yeah. Always the nicest. So I started practicing Foggy Mountain Breakdown again, a little bit rusty. And I went into the studio in, Cal- in Los Angeles, and Earl was there. And they started playing it. And it was at, I think it was faster than we just heard. Which is insanely fast. Insanely fast. And <laughs> I kept up after, you know, like four or five takes. And I had some other moves planned, and I just had to stick with this basic fundamental things. Oh, but anyway, I hung in there and played it. This is a man, by the way, several decades your senior, I'm guessing. So. Yes, right. Yeah. And so this record went on to win a Grammy, and I got a Grammy for Best Instrumentalist. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. All right. So like... then I thought, yeah, I'm a little rusty. I think I'm going to start practicing a little bit. And um, bought a new banjo. I liked it a lot. And I, and I started getting some, uh, bought some new records. Some new banjo records. Started listening to people again, yeah. and I found a guy named Tony Ellis who plays in one of my favorite tunings on the banjo. It's called Double C, and it's very, very emotional tunings. And his melodies were very, very beautiful, and he influenced me a lot. And I started tuning my banjo to Double C, and I wrote a song called The Crow. And then uh, Tony Trishka called me, who's a one of the top banjo players in the world, and he said, "I'm doing a a CD with." Um, different banjo players would you like to play on it and i said i said well tony you know if i just play you know a, another bluegrass song it's not going to be that great i said but i have some songs i've written and he said that sounds good <laughs> so we recorded the crow on his his uh, banjo record and the song went on to become become a kind of modest hit yeah. in bluegrass world Bluegrass Radio. So it sold four or five copies. Yeah, it sold four or five copies. That's amazing. And <laughs> and I started thinking, well, maybe I could uh, do a, a little album. And I could record like four of my songs and then promote, you know, hear some of my other favorite tunes, you know, that other people would play. I oh, thought, okay. Like it would be a compilation. Yeah, a compilation kind of CD. I thought that'd be fun. And then I counted up all the songs I had, and I, I had enough for my own record. And... I thought maybe I'll, I'll give that a try, and I I called up my old I called up a couple of friends of mine Tony Trishka and uh, Pete Wernick who's a great player with Hot Rise. Yeah. The up and comer Dolly Parton was on. Yeah, yeah, and I asked my She's friend John places. McEwen, uh, who was in the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, oh, and he was the first person I ever met who actually had a banjo and played it, and he was we were high school buddies, huh. and the result was this record, The Crow. And I won a Grammy. And again, <laughs> you just like, basically, was it kind of at that point that you go, you know, maybe I'll just do this full time since they want to throw awards at me. I'll just continue. Well, I'm just wondering emotionally what makes you want to dedicate so much of your time now to this? Because you're also touring. I mean, because obviously. I'll tell you why. Because my agent said to me, <laughs> my agent said, he says, you've got this record coming out. You know, you have to go on the road. And I said, I do. I said, I haven't been on the road in 30 years. And he said, well, you've got to go on the road to promote this this uh, album. I said, I don't want to go. He said, well, you have to. And I said, I, I don't even have a band. He said, well, you have two choices. You can just find individual musicians 
you'll either have to find out if they're individually available and you have to assemble it every time, or you can find an existing band to go out with you. And I said, well, I only know one band, the Steep Canyon Rangers. And we had played together once, and I thought they were fantastic. So we formed this alliance, and then it was just no looking back. So actually, that was going to be my next question. You met the Steep Canyon Rangers at a party, is my right. understanding. Mm-hmm. In North Carolina. And I was going to ask you what about them. I mean, you could you put out a Grammy-winning album with you know the biggest names, some of the biggest names in country music. You could have mm-hmm. had your choice of anybody. You went with them because they were available? <laughs> well, I really liked them. I really like their sound and they're strong and I like I I, I like the fact that they're they're they have a certain unity yeah. of the sound and uh I didn't want to have like all stars. I, I don't know, it just doesn't seem right, you know. I mean, and by the way, they have become all stars subsequently. They do shows on their own, of course, and they always have, and they still do. And we just have a good rapport on stage. It also, yeah, it wouldn't be the same on stage. Like the shtick on stage, which is actually very funny, is that you are the you know big-headed celebrity, right. and that they are well, kicking punching bags right. anyway, uh, which you can't do if you're up there with Dolly Parton. Yeah. Uh, the first thing you say to the audience in this live show is a joke about cell phones. Right. In the songs you reference therapy and email, it's pretty clear that you're not interested in presenting bluegrass as this like relic from a museum. But I'm wondering, is it more important to you to bring new fans to bluegrass, which I I think they would be drawn by that, or to not drive away existing bluegrass fans? And I'm sure the answer would be both, but which one, I guess, do you fear alienating? You know, I, I, I just really can't play bluegrass in the pure traditional sense. I don't have the voice for it. I don't have the three-finger style for it. I used to play exactly like Earl Scruggs, yeah. or try to. It's incredible. Your your version of Foggy Mountain Breakdown is eerily similar. That's what. Well, there's almost no other instrument where to play exactly like someone is lauded. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Why is that? Because everybody wanted to sound like Earl. But And it still is that day. If you can play Foggy Mountain Breakdown exactly like Earl, that's a fantastic thing. <laughs> and, but, um, you know, I didn't have instructors. I had a friend, John McEwen, who helped me quite a bit. Mm. But I didn't have instructors, so I really developed my own way of playing. And I, I learned a few, you know, Scruggs tunes. But so, now I'm really playing my own way. So it sounds like you're not really interested in appealing to purists. Uh, well, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Gigs up. <laughs> yeah. That's all there is to it. Uh, you know, I, I remember this uh, anecdote I heard where they asked Cormac McCarthy about a certain movie. The author, yeah. And they said, uh, Cormac, they ruined your book. And he said, no, they didn't. It's right there on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if somebody wants to hear traditional bluegrass, it's very, very available. <laughs> it's there for you. <laughs> you know, the internet you know, exists. I, let's put it this way. I don't think the audience wants to come to hear me do traditional bluegrass. You know, I've written all the songs in the show, and it's been working so far. I want to say for those who know you mainly from your humor and are maybe bluegrass averse, Mm -hmm. this is actually a very funny show. And there are a lot of funny sides and hilarious songs. And one of my favorites is called Jubilation Day. Can you introduce this and tell us what it's about? Well, uh, I always try to find an angle on a love story. So uh, on this one, I thought, well, first of all, breakups. I don't think they get written about very often in love songs. So I thought I was going to go with that. And I wanted to make it a song like if you were breaking up with somebody, it's like, "Mm, maybe there's a feel-good side to it. (laughs) All right, let's listen to Jubilation Day. I'm walking away. Let's only remember the good times. I'm walking away. Like when you broke your foot. 
I'm walking away. But the sex was great. I'm walking away. He said, that's what my best friend's brother said. I'm walking away. And I'll never forget that great advice you gave me. I'm walking away. Blah, 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 blah. That's not something you hear often in a country song, just blah, blah, blah. It's a great lyric right there. I love that the Rangers back it up with blah, blah, blah. <laughs> no, they're perfect. And they, they came up with that. They said, what if we went blah, blah, blah? Perfect harmony. Just folk and country music in general seem more able to have humor grafted onto them than, say, rock and roll. Why do you think that that Well, is? in the early shows I saw in the 60s when folk music came to Orange County and bluegrass music came to Orange County, there was always a funny introduction to a song. And yeah. then the song could be serious or not, or and it could be deadly serious and still have a funny introduction. So that was just in my bones. Why do you think that is, though? Why, why is it okay? Because it was a show. It was a show as much as it was a concert. And a folk concert. Right. And even when I first saw the Dillards, they were... For those maybe who don't know them, they played on the Andy Griffiths show. Oh, my God. They were the, I can't remember what their group name was on the show right the now. The fake but, group name. Yeah. But anyway, Doug Dillard, saw him live and just, oh, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. He was lightning fast, and he always capoed up to the fifth fret. So the banjo sounded extra high-pitched and extra piercing and extra driving. And they had just had great, great comedy. You were laughing, and then you'd just be thrilled and amazed when they sang the songs. And that's a trope of folk music. In rock and roll, it's not. You know, that's not something you come to the show expecting. Absolutely not. I remember once I was sitting in Lorne Michaels' office, and Mick Jagger called. He was. They were going to do the Super Bowl. Right, right. The Rolling Stones were going to play halftime. And he was looking for some jokes. And <laughs> For the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah. Mick Jagger? And I said, I said, I've got one. I said, how about this? Please, no photos. <laughs> <laughs> now, I realized later, he couldn't have been asking for the show period. Maybe he was asking for the uh, for, interviews or something. Yeah, for but, when he meets people yeah. afterwards. But, Mick Jagger isn't going to pause his Super Bowl halftime show to deliver some one-liners. <laughs> All right, we always end our interviews with two standard questions. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? I remember one uh, interview question that really depressed me. It was um, (laughs) after I had done L.A. Story, the movie L.A. Story. And into the script of L.A. Story, I put everything I believed about L.A., both emotionally, practically, philosophically, and fancifully. Hmm. And I really poured my heart into this movie. And now it's time to promote it. And I sat down and the very first interviewer said, what do you really think about L.A.? (laughs) (laughs) I just spent three years telling you. Yeah, I just had no answer. Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. Uh, You probably didn't know that I was at one time a pretty good trick roper. Like lasso tricks? Yes. When I was in my teen years, I could throw the lasso around myself and jump in and out of it and throw it over my head and twirl it around my body. In fact, you can even see it in Three Amigos. Oh, that's uh, right. But, but I had to relearn it. I, when I was about seven years old, a cowboy came to our school, and his name was Monty Montana. And he of came course. with his horse, and he rode up and down and... When I did Three Amigos, it was Monty Montana who came 
to refresh my skills. What? Yeah, it was fantastic. You fa- that guy was still alive? He was still alive, yeah. That's amazing. By the way, is there any kind of old-fashioned skill that you don't have? Do you also whittle? <laughs> <laughs> I don't whittle. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I, had, I actually did have one other thing to ask you. It's something that I know as a fan who's been following your career, but it, maybe many people don't, is that uh, you have a card that you give people if you ask. Oh, that was the, that was a long time ago. Oh. Yeah, that was a long, long time ago. You don't have it. It didn't anymore? quite work. No. Can you tell people what it? What yes, it, it was on? a. This was during you know the seventies when I was couldn't walk down the street, and uh, without getting getting an people, autograph request, and yeah. I thought, what do people want really when they ask for an autograph? They want to have a little contact, and they want to go back, and and their friends will say, what was he like? And yeah. so this, what was he like? has to be able to be answered in four seconds. (laughs) (laughs) And so I had this card made with a signature on it, and it says, this this certifies that you have met me and that you found me courteous, polite, something, and funny. And uh, (laughs) You just hand that out. Yeah, I was handing that out, and it was kind of supposed to be ironic, but some people didn't take it that way. When I first uh, read about that, um, I had this idea that I would carry around a card in case I ever met you. And if you handed me that card, that I would hand you a card. And I actually made one up hoping that you had it. Oh, I don't have the card. You, you don't, don't have the card, but I was going to hand you Let's this see card. Let's see what it says here. This card certifies that Steve Martin's card was received in good faith by Rico Galliano. That's right. Who was delighted beyond measure. I'm sorry I didn't bring the card. <laughs> Steve Martin speaking with Rico last April. You can catch Steve with Edie Brickell and the Steep Canyon Rangers at the Hollywood Bowl, where they're performing a series of shows to celebrate the 4th of July. And I should note, by the way, a week after that interview, Steve sent our office a stack of those old autograph cards of his. He'd found some leftovers in his office, and we've got a photo of one at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. That's also where you'll find past episodes of our show and where you can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Mm. And hey, if you found us on iTunes, uh, why don't you go leave us a kind review? It's not hard. Please do it. I'll write it for you. You can email me, and I'll tell you what to write. That's Is that not cheating? I'm just helping them with their homework. All right. Well, that's nice of you. We'll be back on Friday with an all-new episode. Till then, bon appétit.